you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. We are a church that loves Jesus. We are a church that believes Jesus has revealed himself to us through his word. If you came this morning and you are looking for a cantata, if you're looking for a paper mache stone that gets rolled off and some lights shine through, or maybe you're more pragmatic, maybe you were thinking, I need to hear a good sermon on how to balance my checkbook, that church is down the street. You're in the wrong place. At four points, we know. How many of you are 25 years or older? Let me see your hands. So I said I stopped at 25 because everybody 25 and younger, you've never been wrong before. <laughs> 25 and older, as we get older, we realize how foolish we are. Uh, we've been wrong. I'm 47 years old. I've been wrong a lot in my life. Amen? How many middle-aged people out there? The older we get and the more we realize how wrong we can be. The greater the need for truth becomes in our lives. And we believe that all scripture is God. Breathe. God doesn't get anything wrong. Amen? So that's why we stick so close. And here on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to stay in our series uh, on Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament in your Bible. We're going to pray, and I'll give you a little feedback uh, on, on why we're in chapter 3 and what happened before, so you're not lost if you're new or visiting. But if you are new or visiting, we have. We want you to love your Bibles. We want you to learn about God and how he's revealed himself so that you can know him and know what is true from all of the lies. We've written study guides. Our pastors here at the church have written study guides to help you study the book of Exodus. We also have scripture journals up front. Here's the deal, uh, especially for you Baptists. I'm fixing to pray, and we're all going to have our eyes closed. It's okay if you want to sneak up and get one of these while our eyes are closed. God will not smite you. He will not strike you dead. I'm telling you, it's okay. So we're going to pray, close our eyes, grab one of these. They're free to you uh, if you would like one. Uh, before I pray, though, let me also say before we get started... It's good to have my mommy and my daddy here. Yeah. You guys, please, let me embarrass you just a bit. Stand up. Let everybody see. Yeah. Sarah's mom was here earlier. I forgot to recognize her, so I'll be in trouble later. But at least I got my mom and dad in there. <laughs> Just so you know, I was talking to a young man this morning who I hadn't seen in a while, but he was telling me how God has been working in his life and delivered him from, from so many things. And for two years, he's been walking with the Lord and, and loving Jesus. Just a wonderful testimony. Uh, if this church means anything to you, come up and hug my mom after church because I was a punk kid. I was a punk kid. At 15 years old, I said, nope. Forget church, forget God, forget everything. And I went and did my own thing. And I would come home at all hours of the morning. In my mind, it would be three, it would be four o'clock in the morning. And my mom would be sitting there on her knees, eyes swollen with tears, crying out for God 
to save my soul. And she wouldn't even say, I'd walk in. And she would get up, she'd look at me, and I was home, I was safe. God answered her prayer, so she'd just go back to sleep. But at 21 years old, God answered my mother's prayer. And I have never been the same. So, by God's grace, he uses turds like me. And he answers, mother, if you're in the room, they're never too far gone. Stay on your knees, God answers prayers and he does amazing things give her a hug because there would be no four points without God using her to save to pray me into the kingdom amen let's pray now father in heaven you are good and we love you thank you for seeing us for hearing us for knowing us thank you for answering prayer Lord Jesus, I pray this morning, Resurrection Sunday morning, someone in this room is dead in sin, just like you were dead in the tomb. But God, through the power of your spirit and through the message of your gospel, bring them to life this morning. Father, and all those of us in this room that already belong to you, encourage us through your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things and every Christian said... Amen. Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 opens up. God has given promises to Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, he says. Uh, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. God is making a nation out of Abraham just like he promised. But a famine comes into the land. And Abraham and all his children would have died. But God provided a way to save them by bringing them to Egypt, who he had prepared Egypt to survive the famine. So all God's people that he was building into a nation survived because they came to Egypt. But in Exodus chapter 1, a Pharaoh comes to power, and he sees all these Israelites in his kingdom, and he becomes afraid of them. He says, these people are growing too fast. They're going to overtake us. And so we all know that fear leads to great decision making. Pharaoh says, he puts his thumbs down heavy on these Israelites. We, we got to stop these people from growing, from flourishing. So he enslaves them and gives them a life of hard labor in serving the Egyptian people. And that doesn't work. God is good to his promises no matter what man attempts to do. No man can thwart God. Amen? They still grow. They still flourish. So what is Pharaoh, what's the next scheme in his mind? He tells the midwives in chapter 1, Anytime a baby is born to the Israelites and they are a boy, kill them. His, his next plan is genocide. And the midwives disobey the king. And when the king sees that they have disobeyed, he tells every Egyptian in the kingdom, if you see a Hebrew child that is male, throw them into the Nile. He commands his people to murder the children. Oh boy. Some of you might say, well, that would never happen today, Brent. It happens right now. The sons of daughters of Molech still exist. You know, we read the Old Testament about people who sacrifice their children. And we say, oh my goodness, how could they? We do the same things today. 
Molech still exists. A third of my generation have been murdered by their own mothers. Infanticide. Happy Easter, four points. Still is happening today. 200 years from, just like we look back at colonial slavery today and we go, how could we have been so foolish? How could we have been so wrong another 200 years? They're going to look back and go, how could they sacrifice their children? The same way when we read the Bible and they sacrifice their children. They're going to think the same way. How could we do such a foolish thing? People do it every day. We got to get rid of these Israelites. Chapter 2. We see Moses being born. He's supposed to die. He's a son of Israelite parents. So his mother hides him in a basket in the Nile. And who finds him? The daughter of Pharaoh himself. Who defies her own father's command and adopts this Israelite Hebrew boy as her very own son. For 40 years, Moses grows up as a son of the Pharaoh, a prince of Egypt. He eats at the king's table. All the wisdom of Egypt he learns. But in chapter 2, he begins to identify with God's people. And he, he sees his Israelites being mistreated and he tries to do something. And an Egyptian ends up dying at, at his hand. He becomes a fugitive. Harrison Ford running off. And he finds himself for the next 40 years meeting a man named Jethro, marrying one of Jethro's daughters and working for Jethro. He's a shepherd out on the backside of the desert. 40 years in Egypt as a prince. Now 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. Enter chapter 3 of Exodus. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian... And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Midian was a populated place. Why is Moses moving further out into the wilderness with his father-in-law's flocks? Because all the land in Midian is being grazed. He's got to find some good, what does a good shepherd do? He leads to good pasture. So he's trying to find some ungrazed pasture. So he moves a little bit out further into the wilderness. Now the wilderness in scripture is very important. Some of you this morning have walked in here. In fact, some of you have drug problems this morning. You were drugged to church. You were made to dress up and you were drugged to church. <laughs> Listen, you may feel there's nothing to this, that you're just, you're just in a dry place. There's no faith in your heart. God loves bringing people into the wilderness because it's in the wilderness he reveals himself. When we're so parched with thirst, he loves being the stream in the desert that brings the so needed refreshment that we must have to survive. This is why God moves us into the wilderness so he can reveal, so we're thirsty and hungry enough to listen, to pay attention, to notice him and what he's doing in our lives and in the world. 
fact, Winston Churchill has a great quote about the wilderness. He says, every leader must at some point, he must know the intricate realities of society. But at some point, he must leave society and go out into the wilderness and reflect so that he can come back with answers for that complex society. It's exactly what God does with Moses. He knows Egypt. Now he's in the wilderness and moving deeper into the wilderness so that God can reveal. You know what our problem is today? We live in what is known as the information age. Did you know that a seventh grader today is processing more new data than presidents of our country during the great world wars. We wonder why so much medication, we wonder why so many anxiety issues, information issues, constant data, new data, new data, new data, new data, constantly. This rectangle, I almost said square, but I'm not an idiot. <laughs> this tiny little rectangle has more power than all of the computers that sent man to the moon. Unless you're a conspiracy theorist and the world is flat and birds are mechanical, spies for the government. <laughs> There's a few of you in here. Constantly inundated with new data. And what do we do? We never even process. It's just social media, and there's always posts, and there's always stories, and the news is 24 hours a day. New data. New. We never stop. We never reflect. We never process. We need the wilderness. We need to take moments of solitude so that we can hear God's voice through all the noise so we can see truth amongst all the lies and the falseness that is around us. God leads his people into the wilderness so it's quiet enough where they can take notice of who he is and what he's doing, if you are in the wilderness this morning, it's a good place to be. It's where God reveals. It's where God illuminates. It's where he turns the light on so you can truly see what is important versus all the noise. As he moves out into the wilderness from Midian, he comes to Horeb. This name is synonymous with Mount Sinai. It's an important mountain called here the mountain of God. Not because the mountain itself is significant, because it's where God chooses to reveal himself to Moses, to his people. In Exodus 19, Exodus 20, it's where he gives the law. It's where other prophets travel to, to hear from God. The mountain is not special. It is the presence of God that is special. Verse 2. Now let's read 2 through the beginning of 7 quickly. I want you to underline a few things. And the angel of the Lord, underline that, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord, circle that, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him. Underline, God called to him out of the bush. 
Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he underlined it. He said, that's Yahweh, that's God. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And verse 6, he said, underline it, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Underline that, at God. Verse 7, then the Lord said, underline it again, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Now back up to verse 2. An angel of the Lord appeared. Now we're, we're familiar with this word angel. Most people, when they hear the word angel, think of a fat little baby in a diaper with wings. Cupid, it's a cherub. Usually they've got a harp or a bow and arrow. But that's not what is happening. The word angel simply means messenger. So a, a messenger from the Lord appears unto Moses. But look at verses 3, 4, 5, 6, or 4, 5, 6, and 7. When this angel speaks, he speaks as if he is God himself. When we see this, and this happens a, a half dozen times in the Old Testament, when we see this, we call it a theophany. Because this is not just some angel or some messenger. This is a pre-incarnate cameo appearance of Christ himself, the second person in the triune Godhead. We know, God already knows before the foundations of the earth, God knew he was going to save man by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That incarnation happened when Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, was born. We read about that in the Gospels. But before, in the Old Testament, there are some, some pre-incarnate cameo appearances. Moses is meeting who we know as Jesus Christ, God in flesh. That's why who can speak for God unless they're God. Amen? So this angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now remember, Moses is at the base of a mountain. Everyone's always looking for a mountaintop experience. Amen? Everybody wants to be at the peak Almost all of us in this room have been somewhere around Blue Ridge Mountains. Probably 80% of the people in this room, you've probably traveled up to the, the Smoky Mountains or the Redneck Riviera, as I call it. <laughs> Pigeon Forge, Sevierville, Gatlinburg. Used to be super family friendly. Now it's just moonshine, 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 moonshine. <laughs> just that's what rednecks do. They turn everything into a drinking game. Hey, let's drink moonshine and go ride some go-karts. <laughs> Hold my moonshine and watch this. Pew! <laughs> I'm having a good time, Dad. <laughs> having a good time here. What was I even talking about? Oh, mountains. Some of us, you, you may have had the opportunity and the privilege to go out west and see the real mountains, Rocky Mountains. Yeah. Now I offended some southeastern people. Now Smoky Mountains are real mountains. <laughs> right? The mountain is there. The majesty of the mountain is there. God chooses to speak out of a bush. There is meaning there. There is nothing too insignificant for God to use in our lives. 
God could have spoke from the top of the mountain. He does later. But this time he chooses a humble, small thorn bush, which are the bushes that are native to this area. A thorn bush. God decides to speak. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses through a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now bushes being on fire in the wilderness is not really a sight to behold. And they burn up quick because it's a dry climate. But what catches Moses' attention? Something supernatural is occurring. Something out of the ordinary is happening. This bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. So Moses says, look at verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight. This is my prayer for some of you this morning in this room. My prayer is through God's word, like Moses, you will be stopped in your tracks and somehow hungry enough and desperate enough and dry enough and parched enough to turn aside to see what God is doing. Because God is at work. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see what God is still doing in the world. I mean, why are we still here? If Jesus was just some Jewish carpenter, would we still be here? So many nations have tried to burn this book, but but it burns, but it's not consumed. God is still speaking. God is still changing lives. May we be encouraged to know him. If you don't know him, turn aside like Moses. See what he's doing this morning all around you. And Moses said, I will turn aside while the bush is not burned. Verse 4, and when the Lord, now look at, I told you to underline that name. That is the personal name of God. It's how he reveals, it's the name he reveals. We're going to see how God defines that name in a moment. But anytime you see the word, there's a couple different words for Lord. But when you see Lord in the Bible, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. That is called the Tetragrammaton. That that name for God is Y-H-W-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton because it's four letters, no vowels. God reveals, it's it's used over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. It's how God reveals himself, it's his name. The Jews were scared to death to pronounce this thing, they were, they were afraid they were going to pronounce it wrong and offend God. So we actually lost the correct pronunciation of it. Uh, today we, we pronounce it, we, add, we take some words, uh, we take some vowels from another word for Lord, Adonai, and we, and we mix it into the Tetragrammaton, and we say Yahweh. But Jewish rabbis would say uh, more closely to the correct pronunciation would be And what they say is God in his creation creating male and female together in his likeness, in his image, both. Every time we exhale, we are proclaiming and worshiping the name of God, our creator. His name is like the breath that he's given us, the life that he's given us. This is his name. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him from the bush, 
Moses, Moses. Anything, anytime in Scripture something is repeated twice, it means pay attention. Something is happening here. And Moses knows something is happening, so he responds the way that Abraham did, the way that Jacob did. Here I am. The way the prophets are going to respond when God speaks later in the Old Testament. Verse 5, and then he, Yahweh, said, do not come near. Negative command. Stop what you're doing. Pay Caution. Caution. Do not come near. Followed by a positive command. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, what makes the ground holy? The same reality that makes our time together this morning holy. It's not a building. You guys know this is nothing more than a, a metal frame barn, right? You ever heard the saying, put some lipstick on a pig? That white brick out there is lipstick on a pig. This building, have you ever been to uh, a big city and, and, and those, op- those old churches and the cathedrals, they're open for touring. Even unbelievers, when they walk into these buildings and see the stained glass and the rich stained woods and the beams, they take their hat off because there's a sense of holiness. But buildings aren't holy. Stained glass is nothing more than a tool used to try to teach Bible lessons to people who couldn't read in the medieval world. That's all it is. There's nothing holy about stained glass or organs. I'm sorry, Baptist, I'm, I'm really hitting you hard. What makes the ground holy? God is there. What makes our time? The church is not, I know it says church on the building, but the buildings are the church. We, God's people, his presence, his spirit dwelling in us. That's what makes this time holy. If you're an unbeliever in the room and you're uncomfortable and you're like, what is this? It's the Holy Spirit. Welcome to church. (laughs) Get saved. (laughs) Moses does as God requests. Because when God shows up, acts of obedience are what happens. Acts of obedience don't save us, but they're what happens when we know that God is speaking. Verse 6, and he, God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God has been at work. We stand today on the shoulders of those who he has been working in for generations and generations. This is 3,500 years ago. And God worked in them and he's still working in us today. And Moses, I am the God of your fathers. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look. When we turn on the news, everything is on fire. Why has the world lost all common sense? It is because we have lost the awe. We have lost the sense of the holiness of God. Anytime somebody meets God in Scripture, the the first response is always the same. Fear! 
Scripture teaches the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We walk around. How arrogant is our culture? How arrogant the people that surround us. They open the Bible and they they say things like, well, God shouldn't have done that. They take God off of his throne. They treat him like maybe he's an inch taller. And they take him off his throne and they put him in the palm of their hand. And they scold God, the creator of all things. The breath they have to scold him is a gift given to them. They think they're in judgment of him. How many of you have heard? Come on, all you 80s, Warrant and Motley Croon, Skid Row, whoa. All my friends are going to be in hell, so I might as well join them. (laughs) Spoken like a fool. It's a fool. Turn to Isaiah 6 quickly. Nobody meets God without understanding the holiness of who he is. When Isaiah, the man of God, sees the Lord, there is a response that needs to be all of our response. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There are angels from eternity past to right now and forever who are simply circling the throne, looking at the glory of God, and all they can utter Day after day after day, moment after moment after moment, as they gaze upon him, new dimensions of his holiness are seen, and all they utter is holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Scripture teaches us, believe it or not, Each one of us, whether the Lord returns during our lifetime or when we close our eyes the final time and are laid in our graves, as we go the way of all of our fathers, there will come a moment where we stand before Creator God. And do you know what happens at that moment? When we, like Isaiah, stand before Him and when we see True glory, true goodness, true righteousness. See, we all think we're righteous. For the last two years, there's still people. I see them all the time driving their cars by themselves with a mask on. (laughs) Saving themselves from themselves. People are looking. For ways to be, I'm a good citizen. I'm doing everything right. I'm doing what I'm told. People are always looking for righteousness. But the reality is when we stand before true righteousness, we're going to see how faulty and how false the righteousness. Oh, I gave to the pet people. that we, I saved 39 cats in my lifetime through my $25 a month. I'm such a good person. My neighbor, man, they're a jerk. I'm a good person. 
We're going to see how good we are when we see true goodness. And guess what happens? All those professors with their pipes. I don't know what. I mean, we hear follow the science, follow the science. You know where the science, you know what science says? We come from nothing and we're going nowhere. This is a big made up nothing, nothing's important, nothing matters, there's no purpose, there's no promise, it's just random chaos and chance. Every person who believes that is going to stand before creator God who created all things and holds all things together and all that ideology, all those thoughts that made them feel so good about themselves in this life, it's going to melt like wax before true goodness and true holiness. All their excuses are going to fall and break like glass around their feet. You know what's going to happen? Every knee. Everyone, Vladimir Putin, we're going to see his knees hit the ground as he cries out. I thought, the great Russian bear, you are king of kings and you are lord of lords. Our presidents, Biden, Trump, think of the strongest man, the strongest woman you can think of. Think of the holiest man, the holiest woman. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. No one will escape the reality of a holy God. Oh, I didn't even read. Isaiah, when he sees God, Woe is me, for I am unclean. Back to Exodus. Then the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. You may not think God is looking down on you this morning. You may feel like you have run so far from Him that you are completely out of His sight. You may be a Christian and feel like God has abandoned you. You may feel like you're being punished for some sin that you committed, that he's taken his hands off of you, which is why you're suffering. That is a lie. That's false. He took the punishment so you don't have to, regardless who you are or where you come from. Three things in verse 7, God sees you. He hears you. Moms praying for your lost kids. He sees, he hears, the, the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro. His ears are attentive to the prayers of his people. He sees you, he hears you, he knows exactly what you're feeling. Why is Jesus our good high priest? Because in human flesh he experienced pain, suffering, hardship, anxiety, fear, stress. He knows exactly what you're going through in this flawed human flesh. He sees you. You're not abandoned. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. Verse 8. And I have come down, God says to Moses, to deliver them. Now we give Moses a lot of credit for the deliverance, but who delivers? 
God delivers through his servant Moses. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The land of Canaan had never been united as one nation until God brought his people there. And under King David, united that land, and they became the nation of Israel. A land flowing with milk and honey is the promise that God gives. They're still enslaved in Egypt. How can, how can Moses believe this? But God says this is what's going to happen. A land flowing with milk and honey. Have you ever been reading to your kids the Bible at night and they're like, how does a land flow with milk? You ever seen a little bubbly spring of milk on your land, make a little creek of milk running down? No, that, the reference is goat's milk. It's a land with good, green, healthy pasture that will satisfy large herds. So the milk, what do we need? Anybody ever seen alone? Right? What Most of us are probably on no-carb diets. I have lost some weight. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> right? But if you're trying to survive out in the wilderness, you need calories. You need carbohydrates. You need protein. Goat's milk was the, in the Middle East, in this area, it was a great source of protein. Needed milk. Honey is not bees' honey. There's not a bunch of beehives out in the Middle East. It was dates, the sweet, thick syrup from dates. There was your carbohydrates. You got your protein in the milk, your carbohydrates. God's people could survive off the, the fruit of the land. It was a good land. Everything they needed, God was going to provide them. This was a promise to Moses, but we know the end of the story. It was fulfilled, just like our inheritance is sure. Eternity at the table of our Lord and King choices meets wine that flows like a river. Eternity in the presence of God is our inheritance in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Yes! I have been waiting for an opportunity to prove myself. That's a 20-year-old American. <laughs> Moses knows he is in no position to go to Pharaoh. He's wanted for murder. In Egypt. He's on the lamb. That's why he's been hiding out in the desert for 40 years. Moses knows he has no power in and of himself to do what God is saying he's going to do through him, which is why Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I can't do this, which should be the answer to all of us. When God is leading us. I mean, we live in a world that is anti-Christian. Post-Christian became a thing way back in Obama's presidency. We're a post-Christian nation. Christians used to be, when I was a kid, Christians were goody two-shoes. Don't invite them to the party, they're going to be a buzzkill. <laughs> Today, Christians are ignorant, backwoods, 
uh, xenophobic, all this, the homophobic, all the stuff. We're seen as the bad guys. How can we stand for God and do anything for God in this world the same way Moses did? Of course, we can't do it in our strength or in our power. But God's answer to Moses, verse 12, he, uh, God said, I will be with you. Everything good. And we have a sign out front, four things. The last one is spirit-filled. Everything good that God does through us, we give him the glory for because it is not us, our power, our strength that does anything good. It is he who continues to use his people the same way he used Abraham, the same way he used Moses. He uses us still today to make the difference that his will is bringing in this world. Come hell or high water, amen. I will be with you. And this is going to be a sign. You're going to worship God on this mountain. You're going to serve God on this mountain, which... Is fulfilled in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Moses finds himself at this same mountain with all God's people free to serve God and to hear his word. Verse 13. Second question. Two questions Moses has. Now we're going to see five excuses God give, uh, Moses gives God a little later. That's going to be awesome. You need to be here for that. You Easter only people, come back. You're going to love the five excuses Moses gives God. But the first question here, he says, who am I that I could, should do this? The second, God says, I'll be with you. So it leads to the next question, who are you? Remember, Moses has been in the wilderness. He was raised in Egypt. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Now Moses isn't saying, hey, uh, I missed your name. What's your name again? A name in the Old Testament. This is, what are you about? Who, ident identity, dip, depth, core, purpose. Who are you? If they should ask me, what is his name? What is he about? What is the purpose? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, there's our personal name, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Any of you ever taken a philosophy class? One of those great little illustrations uh, philosophical professors love to, to give young students to really make them think about perspective and about God and religion. They say, if I put an elephant out in front of seven blind men and I take all the blind men and I put them all around the elephant and I, I ask them to touch a different part, they're all going to have a different response as to what is in front of them. The blind man in the back touching the tail says, says God is like a rope. And the blind man around the leg of the elephant says, well, God is like a, a tree. And one's on a, a little ladder touching the side of the, and God is like a wall. And, and one's touching the tusk, and God is like a spear. And the philo philosophical professor stands up front. <laughs> I'm so smart, perspective, yeah, it's, it's all the same. The problem with the illustration is, it's not God, it's an elephant. And the reason they don't know it's because they're all blind. Listen, 
Right? Atheists don't believe in God at all. Agnostics. If it wasn't for the Bible, I'd be an agnostic. I would look at the mountains and the trees and creation. I can't believe we come from nothing and going, no, I can't believe this is all random chance. There's got to be some per, anytime you see design, there has to be a designer. And the agnostics have this part right. There's got to be something out there, but we can't ever really know what it is or who it is. I would be agnostic except for this point right here. Why aren't we agnostic? Because God, we couldn't know God unless God reveals himself, which he has done. So we don't have to be blind. You hear me say it all the time. God, thank you for not leaving us blind, deaf, and dumb. But God flips the lights on so we can see. He illuminates. He reveals himself to his people. And that's how we can know that we can know that we can know who he is. Who are you? Who sent me? I am has sent you. Now, if you were looking in a baby book for a name for your baby, and you got to Yahweh, the definition of Yahweh would be, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. Now, if you're on a plane, we're going to be like five minutes late, okay? <laughs> if you're on a plane, you sit down next to a guy, and you're like, hey, how's it going? I'm Brent. Uh, what's your name? I am. <laughs> you're putting the earbuds in. Okay. <laughs> if I fall asleep, please don't cut my throat. <laughs> Because <laughs> obviously you're schizophrenic or something. <laughs> but God reveals, defines himself for Moses with a verb. You know what God says? Tell them being has sent you. That's what I am is. This is the definition of the base block of ontological uh, understanding. It's a name that has no beginning and no end. It's just, he is. There's no boundaries to God. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. His name represents his self-sufficiency. He's not like our son. We know our son is eventually, it's burning. But eventually it's going to burn out. It's going to exhaust itself. And we're going to, well, if we're around then it won't be, we won't see it, we'll be dead. But... God, unlike our son, never exhausts himself. He needs nothing. He simply is. That verb, past, present, and future. I am the God of your fathers. And I will continue to act in consistency with myself. I am the God who has come right out. I am delivering my people right now. And there is a future tense promised land that I will give them, tell them being, tell them I am has sent you. God is not defined. We are defined by the things and the voices we see around us. Isn't it amazing how quickly your mood can change when you turn the news on. God is not defined by anything. He is the definition. It is He and He alone. He is the only thing that will matter when we come to the end of ourselves. This is who God is. 
Now, Jesus in the New Testament, some of you are saying, how are we going to get to Easter? <laughs> Jesus in the New Testament, the, the religious leaders are chiding him, and they're talking about Abraham, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 I know Abraham. And they say, how can you know Abraham? You're not even 40 years old. This is 1,500 years later when Jesus, when, when the incarnation actually happens. It's not just the angel of the Lord, but physical Jesus in flesh, God in flesh. He says this in John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, double emphasis, pay attention, pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The God who revealed himself to Moses has revealed himself to every living creature through his word. You see Jesus, you see the face of the Father. Jesus is God in flesh. Here's what you need to know today on this Resurrection Sunday. God is good, holy, perfect. And he created all things good, holy, and perfect. Genesis 1.31 says, On the sixth day God looked at it all he had made, including Adam and Eve, and he said, It is very good. So what's the problem? We are. So look in the mirror. That's the problem. Romans 3.23, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Dalai Lama, whoever your, your heroes and your idols are. No one is righteous, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. There is no way we can white knuckle this thing. There's no way we can grit our teeth and be good enough. We have severed our relationship with the God Almighty. Our righteousness will always fail uh, when we gaze upon His righteousness. And there's no hope unless God does something on our behalf, which He does. He looks down on the plight of man. And he, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And not only did he become flesh and dwell among us, but he lived the perfect life that we have not. He satisfied every righteous requirement. When Jesus stands before the Father, they are one in righteousness because they are God in human flesh. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He lived the perfect life and then he did this. He died in our place for our sin. The punishment we deserve, the wrath of God we deserve. Jesus lived the perfect life and then stepped in front of us and took the wrath of God, took our sin from us and gives us his righteousness in return. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. That's what happened on the cross. The righteousness of Christ covers us as he pays the wrath of God for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. This morning we celebrate every Sunday here at Four Points we celebrate. He died in our place for our sins. But then he rose on the... Why do we not worship on Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath in the Old Testament? Because on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ, the angels came, the trumpets sound, the stone rolls away. There's no bones any longer in the tomb. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave on Sunday morning. Amen.
Now listen, again, you've got a choice to make. You can go to the shrine and worship at the dead man's bones. Or you can worship the living God. The God that conquered the final enemy of mankind, death itself, which would have separated us forever from the grace of God. But instead, through Christ Jesus, death only causes us to open our eyes anew in the eternal bliss of the presence of God forever. What do I have to do to be saved? The Bible says to believe in your heart the Lord Jesus. Confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead. And you shall be saved. God has given every person in this room a measure of faith this morning. You can put it in your 401k. You can put it in job security. You can put it in your political party. You can put it in your ethnic group, whatever that may be. You can use that faith to believe in anything you want to believe in today. But I pray the Holy Spirit is at work, that Christians are encouraged. And those in this room who have not put their faith in Christ Jesus would at this moment, the Holy Spirit, break the stone around the hard hearts. God would regenerate you and give you a soft heart of flesh to see God. And the burning that does not consume. He's still alive today. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Trust him this morning. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, I love you. Your word is power. It's more powerful than the acts of the warrior. More powerful than the, the politics of man. Lord Jesus, we pray you do what only you can do. And may we leave here as your people celebrating the fact that this is not dead religion or tradition. But we serve the living God of all eternity who we will spend all eternity with in Christ Jesus. We bless you this morning. It's in Jesus' name every Christian said. Amen. Amen.